You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Kristen Sartwell, what a pleasure to see you again. Pleasure to be seen. <laughs> um, I want to welcome everyone in the Sophia audience to another episode. Uh, and I'm very, uh, very pleased to be joined again by Dr. Crispin Sartwell. You know, Crispin, um, I know as a fact, because they told me, and I've had discussions with them, that several people bought your book after our dialogue. And one of our regular contributors, Seth Leon, um, is like in love. I mean, like... Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. He's been out like, he's been out like, you know... Hey, that's great, because I think, as far as I know, my girlfriend is the only person that's actually read the book. Well, you, I guess, too. Yeah. <laughs> has it, actually, has it been, have you got any reviews done in any of the, you not know, yet. usual places, Notre Dame, that kind of stuff? Or, or? Uh, not that I've seen. You know, it's the kind of thing that would take a while to get through. I mean, sometimes these things take a couple of years anyway, but. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, today we're going to talk about aesthetics. Um and in case by now there's still anyone left now who doesn't know who you are, um, why don't you introduce yourself? <laughs> well, you're listen. You're a known provocateur. You're a media personality. Um, you know, uh, that's a little strong. Um, <laughs> introduce yourself for a second for the audience. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm an associate professor of philosophy at Dickinson College in Carlisle, PA. Uh, written a number of books, I suppose. My first publication was on uh, Danto's aesthetics. And uh, I was what we're going to be talking about today, amazingly enough. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I, I guess I was in dialogue with him about these things from a time I was a pretty young, young philosopher. So, um, you know, I don't know. I, is that a good enough introduction? I'm not sure. Sounds good to me. Um, I'm Daniel Kaufman. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State. Um, we are going to talk about aesthetics today. Actually, this is a, a subject that has been much requested by people in my audience, especially one particularly smart and somewhat salty commentator named O'Reilly um, has, has been begging for aesthetics. And it's only been about three years since he started asking me. Uh, um, so, we're, and we're going to talk about Danto in particular. Um, just, just what we're, you, you mentioned, do you actually have personal correspondence with Danto? Uh, yeah, uh, on and off. I mean, so you might, like I say, my first publication was a, uh, paper on his transfiguration of the commonplace or one of the arguments in, in that book. Yeah. And, you know, I was in grad school when it came out still and he wrote me a letter out of the blue, actually, first of all, complimenting the piece, which I thought was great because it was an attack on him. Um, and, you know, just very generously doing that and, and responding to some of the arguments, you know, in a pretty compelling, careful way. And, you know, I mean, I've rarely gotten that response from someone I've written about, you know. I've never gotten that response. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought maybe that was normal, right? Your yeah. first paper, uh, the person you wrote, the, the big figure you wrote about writes you back like a, a very nice, generous and, you know. Anyway, that was quite typical of him, I would say. I knew him for a long time, and he was an incredibly generous and kind person. Did you ever meet him in person? Oh, yeah, yeah. We hung out at many a uh, conference and, you know, ate lunch in New York uh, several times, that sort of thing, you know. And Yeah. Uh, yeah, I knew him pretty well. Yeah, yeah. The only, the only sort of – I, I – I, for a number of years, I was giving papers at the uh, annual meetings of the British Society of Aesthetics – 
And I actually became friendly with uh, Terry Diffie, who actually is the actual inventor of the institutional theory of art, not George Dickey. Wait, really? Oh, yeah. He's got an essay called The Republic of Art that goes back to the 60s. I guess I vaguely remember that paper. Yeah. I guess maybe, though, I didn't have it in my mind dated correctly or something. Yeah, and he uses um, Anscombe's distinction between brute facts and, and, and then what he calls institutional facts. He's actually the first one. And then George Dickey got all the credit, which is sort of right. unfair. Um, okay. <laughs> so that's the only aesthetic celebrity that I ever got to know really personally. Um, uh, and for the people who aren't in the know, Arthur Danto uh, was, he, he unfortunately passed away, was a um, professor uh, at Col a long, long standing at Columbia University. I think he spent almost his virtually his entire career at Columbia, did he not? Yes, from the 50s, I believe. And worked in aesthetics primarily. Uh, he also was the art critic for The Nation magazine for quite some time. In my view, he was the best esthetician of the post-World War II. Would you agree that he was the best? Or do you think there's anybody else who's as, who's as good and important as him? Well, I, I hadn't really thought about that that carefully. He's a, certainly an excellent candidate for that. Sorry about you seem to have a, having an emergency here in Carlisle. They're coming um, for you, man. They're coming. Yeah. One yeah. is not a screen too many, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I would agree with that, uh, come to think of it. I mean, Nelson Goodman was very important, I thought. Uh, I mean, I, I'm trying yeah. to think who else. Fair enough. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. I was, you know, it's almost, I think of Goodman as such an amazing analytic philosopher. I mean, just so ridiculously, I, I put him at the level of Putnam and, and Kripke and, you know, and, and Davidson and Quine. I don't think of him in terms of aesthetics, even though, of course, he wrote this hugely important book. Right. Well, by the same token, Danto wrote about all kinds of things before he kind of focused into the art criticism yeah. mode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. You know, philosophy of action, epistemology, philosophy of history. Yeah, He was yeah. covering the ground, too. Yeah, yeah. But, I wonder if it frustrated him later on that he became almost entirely associated with aesthetics. I mean, I can't remember reading any of his work in any other area in my education, you know? I don't remember him talking about that specifically. What I do remember him talking about is feeling a little bit uh, saddled with the end of art thing. Mm. That, that seemed to be any, the only thing anyone ever wanted to talk about. Yeah. You know, like after a while, he was like, okay, I'll do the argument again or whatever, but uh, he just sort of be rolling his eyes. Like, you know, this yeah. is my 50th time through on this. Like, yeah, remember my account of Nietzsche or my work on Taoism or whatever, you know? Nope, don't remember that. <laughs> all right, so let's get into it. Um, first of all, just for people who aren't in the know, so aesthetics, sometimes aesthetics and the philosophy of art are used interchangeably. I try tend to not to just simply because okay. me aesthetics has a particular meaning that has to do with both aesthetic experience and aesthetic properties. And the philosophy of art includes that plus a whole bunch of other things like ontology. But I don't really care how you, how you, I don't know how you prefer to talk about it. Um, um, I basically use them interchangeably, I guess, just because I feel like, I mean, you could definitely draw distinctions, uh, you know, say, uh, I mean, the term might have been first thrown out uh, in Baumgarten, right, in the uh, 18th century. And it kind of means philosophy of sensibility and stuff like that. Right. So you can very round, uh, you know, wide-ranging way right um, right well part of it is you know you've got Kant's favorite famous work on aesthetic judgment and it's not really not about art 
Um, um, well, a lot of it is about art, though. Yeah, but the stuff yeah. where he's talking just about the response of beauty, actually he says it's most easily discussed in terms of reactions to nature, like flowers and things like that. I mean, he's got a whole... True, true. But he also says that the beauty of the of works of art is higher than the uh, yeah, yeah. You know, beauty of, of flowers and so on. Yeah, um, well, yeah, 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 yeah. I, um, I'm just thinking in terms of when he, when he talks about it's most easy to have a disinterested reaction to something like that, where you don't know the, where sort of the purpose is not obvious or not sort of exhibited right. on the surface. Um, 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 but anyway, we don't have to. Yes, true. We'll do Kant in another one. Um, um, so, but one of the questions that, that we take up in aesthetics of the philosophy of art is the question of whether the term art can be defined or whether uh, if you want to talk about it uh, slightly differently, whether we can uh, identify a defining characteristic or an essential property of being art. And Dante, some of Dante's most famous work in aesthetics is with respect to that question, and especially a major book called The Transfiguration of the Commonplace. Um, and so I wondered if maybe you could get us started with just what Dante's contribution is to this question and and where he at what point in the discussion does he come in yeah yeah okay so i'd say the, the the very classic source for danto's aesthetics was this paper he published in 64 called the art world and it's basically the argument is taken up in the transfiguration of the commonplace uh you know almost 20 years later or whatever or 15 um and uh and you know it, it I think really it started with his response to Warhol's Brillo boxes, which he never got over his first experience of seeing them in an art gallery. Now, okay, yes, um, the history of attempts to define the term art or work of art is not that edifying. You know, I mean, there are many competing theories put forward over the centuries. Uh, you know, that art is the imitation of reality, say, that we might associate with uh, the Greeks, Plato and Aristotle, you know, mimetic theory, or that art is the expression of emotion, which you get a lot of in, uh, you know, sort of post-romantic um, philosophy of art. Yeah, Leo Tolstoy, the, the great yes. Russian novelist, actually has a book in which he argues that what defines art is the sort of it's a medium in which you express emotions and evoke them in the audience, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, beautiful book, actually. I think yeah. it's still a little bit underrated as a piece of theory. I teach it. I teach it in my studies. Yeah. 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 I teach pieces of it, I guess, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty brief book, though. Uh, you know, or, you know, or, and also, for example, formal theories that uh, came uh, to be dominant in the early 20th century which are quite Kantian, actually. Like Clive Bell is very Kantian. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, that the, you know, he defines art in terms of significant form, which is, like, say, in the case of painting, the arrangement of lines and colors, as opposed to anything, uh, for example, that those lines and colors mean or imitate or right. even express. Yeah. Okay? Um, now, one thing is, I mean, one problem is, that these theories are all compete with one another. And, you know, over hundreds of years, and, uh, and many others as well, over hundreds of years, there seemed to be no uh, convergence toward any kind of agreement. Uh, another problem is that 20th century art, like avant-garde art, seemed intent on throwing up counterexamples to every single theory. 
you know, to the point where if you put a theory out in the Journal of Philosophy, you know, next year, that would be a guideline for an artist to counterexample you in the, uh, in the galleries of New York. Yeah. You know, so if you thought art was the expression of emotion, you know, pretty soon you're looking at, say, a Mondrian grid or a Donald Judd, later on, a Donald Judd box or something like that, you know. Or if you think, um, or if you think art is significant form, although, you know, you might look at monochromes, for example, or, you know, like uh, just black paintings or red paintings or whatever it might be. Or even, I mean, or even the Brillo boxes. I mean, certainly Brillo boxes have significant form. They may have significant form, but that's not what it's about. I mean, if that's the way you're experiencing it, you're getting it wrong, right? Yes. Um, And I mean, one way to look at the Brillo boxes and also like Duchamp's ready-mades is that they completely refute formalism. I mean, that's obvious. And Danto said this right off the bat, which is that, okay, if you can have an object that is a work of art, like a Warhol Brillo box, and an object which is not a work of art, like a Brillo box in the back of a... Actual Brillo box, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, a Brillo box in in the stock room of a grocery store. Uh, and, And you can't distinguish them by how they look. And one is a work of art and one is not. Then what makes something a work of art is not something you can see. Right, right. Now, okay, but to, to get back to sort of the uh, narration of how the, um, the task of giving a theory or definition of art went in mid-century, mid-20th century. Um, you know, so under the influence of Wittgenstein, a number of thinkers, Morris Weitz had a version of this, uh, but many others actually in one form or another, um, argued that art was a family resemblance term, like, you know, Wittgenstein on game, for instance. So that, uh, you know, the idea of looking for essential properties or a definition in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions, you know, a little formulation that would, from which you could generate all and only the works of art, you know what I mean? Like, you, or you could look and see whether something was a work of art once you had the theory. That was going, you know, so they, what they argued was, not only is it the term indefinable, like many general terms, perhaps, but it, uh, you know, there's no urgency to define it because we use it meaningfully as we use the term game in, in sort of a rolling application, you know, ro- a rolling set of usages right. that might be somewhat different. So art could be quite different. What could count as art might be quite different you know, this year than a hundred years ago or whatever. Um, and then, so one thing that is, is almost a plea to give up on one of the main projects of aesthetics, you know, or philosophy of art. Yeah. Um, now Danto, okay. So Danto in the art world, the, his paper, the art world, which was quite a revolutionary paper. I mean, uh, you know, like you said about his importance in the field, I mean, that might be the most single important uh, paper in aesthetics in the late 20th century. I don't know. But uh, it's an important one, or at least in the analytic vein. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd want to specify it because, and Don, in the continental tradition, you have so much. I mean, you know, Benjamin and on all these other people that, that people are going to want to raise. Um, um, but certainly uh, uh, in, in the analytic tradition, I can't think of anything yeah. that had that kind of an impact. Yeah. I I think so. I don't know. I I think about it more too. But um, so, okay. So he didn't redefine art in that paper. 
But what he did was he started to say like, okay, if we're going to think about what art is, we're going to have to think in terms of properties that are not immediately apparent on looking at the object, like the displayed qualities of the thing. If we're looking for the significant form or the intensity of expression in the marks or something like that, we, we're not going to find the artness of the thing by looking because we can't tell the art Brillo box from the uh, non-art Brillo box by just looking. And, but it, the approach suggests that perhaps non-displayed or contextual or relational properties of the work could be used to characterize art, even in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions. So again, that's not something Danto asserted in that paper, if I'm recalling correctly. Right. No, actually, you know, Danto's picking up, so there was an earlier paper that was done by Maurice Mandelbaum, um, who made the argument, which I'm now blanking on the name of the article, but he made the argument that, you know, one could rush to a Wittgenian yes. family resemblances uh, alternative too quickly, right? That, that yes, I remember this paper, yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. being apologized and everything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he he's sort of the one who I, I almost think of this sort of, you know, philosophers had a sort of a, a way of looking at this, right? It's like, okay, we're trying to define this thing, this category art, and damn it, we're having a hard time. Every generation artists come up with new stuff that make the old definition obsolete. It's the the category is getting broader and broader and broader. That looks ripe for a Wittgenstein kind of situation, right? Um, the ready-mades make it even worse because now right. anything could be art yeah. any property in principle could be a defining property of art. And so we go to this Wittgenstein, okay, we won't define artworks. We're going to just say that they're, they're related loosely by family resemblances. And that's how we pick things out in the world that are artworks, whether they suitably resemble other things that are artworks. And then Maurice Mandelbaum comes and says, hold on, wait a minute. You can't define uncle in terms of manifest qualities, but that doesn't mean it's a family resemblance concept. Uncle is defined relationally, right? Right. right? And many, so that's many, a said, oh my God, that's a great, yeah. wait a minute, you know, we, we have to start over, right? And then after that, all the theories tried to find an art relationally, and Dante, just in my view, is one of the earliest and one of the best. This is how I sort of yeah. view this pre-Mandelbaum and post-Mandelbaum sort of okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so, so, but you know, one of the things you mentioned, it's funny you mentioned that art world paper because the reason I don't use it okay. is because it seemed to me to lead an entire generation of philosophers to the mistaken conclusion that Danto was an institutional theorist. Yes. Now, maybe you can talk a little bit about what Danto is and is not um, <laughs> because that, that was often a confusion. Not just lay people, I mean, philosophers misconstrued him. Yes. Well, and I think in one sense, it's perfectly right to refer to him as the founder of the institutional theory in the sense that, you know, Dickey, George Dickey is really, and, and Danto attributed, you know, the invention of the theory to Dickey, um, but Dickey attributed to Danto. Right. Uh, they're both wrong. They're both wrong. <laughs> I told you in my introduction, before we started recording, the, view, the theory was actually invented by Terry Diffie, D-I-F-F-E-Y in an essay called The Republic of Art, which as far as I know is the first time that the institutional theory of art was officially proposed as a theory. Um, the long -term, no who cares yeah. who invented it? <laughs> the long you need to say what it is and why yeah. Danto was thought to be one and then why yeah. he isn't one, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Fifi, long-term editor of the British Journal of Aesthetics. Yes. Um, yes. yes. Okay. Uh, all right. So here's George Dickey's coming somewhat later and attributing the basic move to Danto, his uh, formulation of the institutional theory of art. A work of art is a object or is that artifact on which, uh, which has had conferred upon it a certain status, which is a status of candidate for appreciation on behalf of a certain institution, the art world. Okay. And, you know, so if something is in a museum, it's a work of art, for right. example. Right. Uh, or if, some, if the artist himself or herself is a representative of the art world, and Dickey had very minimal conditions on that, then they could confer that status on their own work. Now, this theory, you see, it moves way off the displayed properties of something, of the object, to the institutional context. Right. It, it's, so, arthood is an institutional status. Right. Like, say, associate professor. Right. It's, like being, it's, like, it's like being a prime minister, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, 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 it's, it's, it's a property that, is a, that reflects, represents a status in some, as deemed by some institution. Right. It's, being, it's like being knighted. Right, right. You know, right. by the queen. We knight okay. the art. We knight this object artwork, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Now, one thing that's really good about that is its apparent extensional adequacy, right? So, in other words, like you're going, you're strolling through MoMA, you're seeing toilets, you're seeing, you know, stacks of bricks, you're seeing, you know, boxes, and you're going like, is that art? Well, yeah, that's answered easily. It's in MoMA. It's definitely art, you know. Right. Uh, so it takes all the mysteries out of that. Now I think there well, are many really. I mean, but does that really help? I mean, there's plenty of stuff inside the MoMA building that isn't art, right? Like True. like the trays in the cafeteria, right? True, but that has MoMA hasn't bequeathed the hasn't given the knighthood to those. Right. So the key is not just that it's in MoMA, but that it's in yes. MoMA by virtue of having a certain status placed yes. on it. Um, um, yes. Um, and 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 you're saying it's essentially adequate in that. It's it's it, it permits any. I mean, it, it sort of gets you out of the ready-made problem in the sense that I don't care how whacked out a thing you come up with or how ordinary a thing you come up with. Um, we can distinguish between it and an identical counterpart simply by virtue yes. of that one had a certain status, put it on it, and that one did not. Right. Um, um, it's kind of disappointing, right? That there's no essence or meaning overall to art except that what these institutions are doing at any given moment. Yeah. Like I, I, thought, I thought the theory was pretty terrible. I mean, first of all, it, it doesn't really answer the question, right? Because it begs the question in virtue of what do things get dubbed art? Do things get the status? And if they, yes. And, and Danto said that among other things. <laughs> yes. And the other uh, problem, it seems to me rather anachronistic, right? I mean, that's not how things became artwork in the 12th century, right? Exactly. Um, um, so, yeah. so you get this weird sort of, you know, everything has to become art retroactively, or you have to give yes. it an anachronistic treatment of older institutions and how art got right. made. It's, right? it's not completely crazy to say that there was no art before, say, 1800 or something, or 1700. But we could get into this, but that's a, that, that's a problem, okay? Yeah. All right. Now, Danto, though, even though, again, Dickey attributed to the, the institutional theory was still the explosively maybe dominant theme in aesthetics meetings and aesthetics journals 
in the eighties when I was coming up and stuff like this, you know, where people were still talking about it all the time. Yeah. yeah. And so it really, and you know, again, Danto was supposed to be the source of it, but he repudiated it. His view is similar in some ways. Um, and it's a little hard maybe to keep a grasp on the differences at different points, but for Danto, something's a work of art because it's appropriately interpreted in certain ways. Okay, it comes in, in, into, it, it gets swept up in an atmosphere of interpretation that in a way gives it a whole globally different set of properties, right? So it's, a, it's really, it's appropriate to say of, you know, even just of a painting, something simple like it's an impressionist painting or something like that, that wouldn't be appropriate to say about just like a, a surface that happened to get a bunch of paint splattered on it. Right. In other words, what a, or what a Pollock expresses versus what a, just a random splatter of paint expresses. Right. right. Even if they happen to take up the same form, the difference between them is the, what's appropriate in the response, in the interpretive response to the object. Right. It's appropriate to interpret the Pollock in certain ways that it would not be appropriate to interpret an identical looking canvas that had had paint spilled on it. Right. Right. Um, and, and that might be in part an institutional matter in a sense, like it, it does matter perhaps that this is presented in an art gallery and stuff like that, that signals to you that it has these dimensions of, or it has these, it had, potentially has a wide set of properties that would be impossible for non art to have, but it's not its institutional place for Danto that gives it that pro those properties. I mean, that's a very complicated matter of the whole context from which it emerges in particular. Yeah, the the uh, institutional framework, it seems to me in Danto, is only simply one part of, the, uh, of, cont of contextual aspects of the work that make it interpretable, right? I mean, in other words, right. it's, it's, <laughs> it has nothing to do with the status granting aspects of an institution, right? It has to do with the fact that certain institutions may need to be presupposed in order to for something to be interpretable in a certain way. Um, um, uh, and so I, I actually don't really think there is much institutionalism in Danto. Um, um, and I think, I think it almost was all because he used this word art world. Yes. Which everybody just got all, you know, excited about. Yes. Uh, um, well, and he did, he did kind of suggest that it's, it's in part the institutional. So when he presents it in that paper, he does things like the Ra a, Rauschenberg, a bed by Rauschenberg or a bed by Oldenburg versus just a bed that looks exactly the same and someone goes in and, 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 and you know, goes to sleep in. And right. he does point out, okay, one thing is it's in an art gallery, okay. Uh, and so this is a way. One of the reasons why it makes sense to interpret, right? right? I mean, yes. Um, 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 yeah, yeah, yes. yes. Although it could be mistaken, right? You could, uh, you could actually be mistaken, unlike maybe for Dickey, that you this is a work of art in some way. Like somehow it's not appropriately interpretable, although it's sitting in Leo Castelli gallery. Right, 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 right. So you know, during you know, you go you go to a ready made exhibition, and you know they've unloaded the Duchamp urinal, but it also happens at the same time that down the hall, they've unloaded a bunch of new urinals for the bathroom. Yeah. And you could mistakenly interpret, stand there looking at one of these and say, oh, look at that, or, or you'd be making a mistake. So, so um, 
the, I mean, it seems to me that the, obviously the relevant aspect that's going to sort of speak to interpretability is going to have to do with a, a whole network of intentions, right? Um, intentions. That's very Danto focused. Yeah. yeah, mostly on the intentional side or the production side rather than the placement in an institution. Yeah, yeah. Although he is going to talk about the conditions. In, in other words, Don is going to talk about what has to be the case in order for it to be plausible to, for someone to mean something by something, right? But then also, what is it reasonable to expect that people could interpret something as meaning by as something meaning by something, right? In other words, yes. he's going to, in Transfiguration of the Commonplace, he's going to go into a lot of detail about those, those sorts of uh, contextual necessities. Um, that are going to make it possible to mean something by something and possible for people to understand something by right. something, right? And he, I mean, he puts it so strongly that it's almost these interpretable objects that are interpretable in this art way almost form a, a different reality, like a different level of reality. So, like they, they, have an they, may, they have an ordinary existence as objects, but they have a... Uh, I, you know, but supervening on that in some way, they have a existence as interpretable objects um, that actually gives them a set of properties that's maybe even incompatible. So, for example, Duchamp's urinal is um, uh, is impudent. Okay, I, I think I used this example in my paper in the eighties. I just regret it. I guess. Uh, okay. No urinal, no mere urinal is impudent. Right, of course not. Okay. No, or better not be. I mean, it's absurd to say that about a urinal that you're pissing right. you're in a... But it's not at all absurd to say it about uh, Duchamp's Fountain. So Duchamp's Fountain is not an, not an ordinary urinal. It's not merely a urinal. Right. Uh, so this is the doctrine of transfiguration. And maybe you could talk a little bit about Dante's concept of transfiguration. And for the audience's sake, it's not an accident that it sounds a hell of a lot like transubstantiation, right? Because Dante makes a direct analogy between this and the Catholic doctrine of the transubstantiation of the host in the Catholic Mass. Um, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about this concept of transfiguration. What is it that happens to paint and canvas and plaster and... Right marble and stuff that now makes it this extraordinary thing that one can interpret things of. How, right. Maybe talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, in a way it is rather remarkable that just like a heap of pigment or something uh, could become, for instance, priceless. Right. You know, or, um, you know, it, it, we do have sometimes a sense that when something when materials are transformed into art by a Michelangelo or something like that, they are, it's not just a matter of it. You shape the marble, you transfigure this ordinary stuff into something sublime, something profound, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, maybe something that moves the history of thought and, you know, art forward in certain ways and stuff like that. Like his idea in, in a way, it's a very old idea is that, you know, the activity of art changes ordinary physical objects into, you know, not exactly spiritual objects, so he plays with that a lot, you know, but transfigures it onto the plane uh, where they have properties that 
are, are wildly transcendent of what they could have had as mere physical objects. Well, they're more than that. I mean, they're contradictory. I mean, he's got this, yes. he's got this idea, that he, what he calls the is of artistic identity, yes. he says is unique in that um, when it applies, it literally means that contradictions are true of the very same object, right? So you, right. Know, if you take, take a statue, you know, this piece of, of marble both is and is not an arm, right? Right, right. One, right. It, it isn't an arm, and that marble arms aren't marble, right? On the other hand, if it's in the statue of David, then it is an arm, right? Right. Um, and then it's an arm by virtue of a transfigurative process that occurs when certain interpretations are legitimately applied uh, to the object. And while not magic, literally speaking, it's quite remarkable that that's possible, right? I mean, that that that, that can happen. <laughs> Right, and so then he says, like with the Brillo box, yeah. okay, that uh, you know that is a Brillo box said of the Warhol is not the same sentence as uh, that is a Brillo box said of the thing in the stock room. That is a Brillo box in the case of Warhol means that it's a radical, bizarre gesture. Yeah, you know, even that is merely a Brillo box. Right. You know, okay, oh my God. Like, okay, there's a revolution. That's the end of abstract expressionism now. You know, like that's a, a revolutionary moment in human aesthetic history. Yeah. But if you're in the back of a stockroom going, that is a Brillo box, you know, that's just, that's even a stupid observation. It said something really mundane and... and, and yeah, useless, really. Obvious. All sorts of things, like you pointed out, don't follow from it, right? So, you know, when I say of Warhol's, that is a Brillo box, it also falls from it that it's clever and that it's revolutionary. Yes. None of that follows. Right. From Not at all. The Miller box when I'm talking about right. thing in the storeroom. Yeah. 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 And so, and actually it could be the very same object. So, you know, so Warhol could have just walked into the storeroom, picked up the Brillo box, taken it to the Castelli gallery. And in that case too, even though it is the very same object at different phases of its career, it has, it takes on, wildly different properties that are incompatible with its previous ordinary identity, according right. to him. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so he introduces this idea of different ontological planes or art as an ontological plane in some sense. Right, right, right. And, and I think, you know, I think the, the, the choice of the term transfiguration was a good one, and I, I do think that it is usefully analogized. I mean, when I teach this in class, I do talk about the, the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. I'm yeah. like, look, this both is and is not the yeah. body of Christ, right? I mean, exactly. it's, right, it's, that, that's the oddity of this sort of thing, right? I mean, it's not as if it actually turns into somebody's arm, right? Um, and yet the faithful believe that it does, it is the body of Christ once the appropriate blessings which you could take to be the appropriate interpretations are yes. applied to it right um, yeah. um but we're all fit we're all the faithful when it comes to the art gallery that's you know, right. like okay there that's that's icarus right in land in right. lands that's you know there's david or whatever we all know how to behave in, yes. that, in that framework let me ask you a question about this um it just sort of occurring to me i mean Is this really something different from, or is this an extension of the more general problem that we have in with respect to, in philosophy of language with respect to how is it that marks and sounds, et cetera, can have meanings, right? I mean, is this is this really simply at bottom 
the problem of how representation at all, and I mean that in the most general sense, not mimesis, but how representation or aboutness is possible. Yes. Or is this a distinctive problem, or is this a species of that or subspecies of that problem? That's, that's hard. Uh, I mean, that's sort of what I was dissertating about at the time and stuff, I guess. I know. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I read your, you know, I used your Danto essay, your first published paper. I, is in my dissertation. Um, nice. So, so, so that's why I wanted to tell you about this. But just, even if you don't have a, a, a form, fully formed view, could you yeah. say a few things about it? Well, okay. There are many questions that arise right there. And, you know, in the transfiguration of the commonplace, I must say, I don't think that a really sensible or specific theory of art emerges. He almost says that art is just aboutness. That is like, if something has a semantics, if it's not, you know, it's not just an object sitting there, but it refers or, you know, somehow puts into play an object, objects beyond itself in, a, in some sort of referring way, um, then it's a work of art. But that seems like this, I'm, maybe I'm reading him. I was reading him wrong, but uh, well, that, that's that's too broad, right? Because that's going to yeah. everything that's interpretable. That's clearly not an artwork, like a bat, like a sign in a bathroom. But I thought that he does re try to refine that through this notion of what he calls style. The sort of yes, the mode of representation. Yes, employs the means of representation in a way that's met metaphorical or rhetorical yes. or, or or whatever. Whether or not that works is, of course, a separate question. Yes. But I think he does try to not just have it be aboutness without any qualification. But you've got to narrow down like certain kind of aboutness or a certain brand or a, you know, or context of aboutness or something. But It's a way uh, of meaning something. Yeah. Art is a, way, a certain way of meaning something that's not straight in a way. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's always, yeah. always non-literal, I think. I think. I mean, and this was so much the, the question of aesthetics, it seemed to me like in the 70s and 80s. You know, like Goodman was on about this. Questions like, are pictures different than words in this right, regard? Right. Or is it all the same relation? Right. Davidson you know? did a bunch of stuff on metaphor. Um, right. Um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, right, Davidson stuff on metaphor. Or, uh, I mean, there's, or all the stuff on reference that was exploding, even Kripke or something like that, you know? That's it's, why I was asking. I mean, could we see Dante now in hindsight as sort of a, a, a late player in the game of, the broader philosophy of language movement of the 20th century, trying to figure out what the hell meaning and representation is and how the hell it works. I think so. I mean, and also, I mean, he even went sort of down the, we are words, we are narrative road at times. Uh, there were moments like, like Joseph Margolis sort of. Right. Yes. I, um, I, these I were all contemporaries, you know, they're, I had uh, to referee one of Margolis's books. Okay. Where he, and I rejected it. <laughs> really? Yes, because he went on and on about how cells are text, and I said, no, they aren't. Yeah, I, I agree. Said, no, don't worry about it. The book was published anyway. So, yes, you know. yes. Um, but I felt History like thought, I, constructed world? Uh, no, I don't know. I think <laughs> cel selves and other texts? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 I agree. I was plays with that. But, you know, <laughs> this, this kind of hermeneutic moment, I think, or I don't know how to describe it. I know what but, you mean, yeah. Yeah. But like just, or just the complete obsession, maybe of the whole century in a way, with this, with the relation of representation or reference. And you know, I was, I was, I spent a lot of time trying to say that pictorial representation is quite different than linguistic reference, you know, and things like this. 
Um, Danto is definitely playing in that space, but I don't even know if the kind of views that he's going for, though, are kind of perversely inappropriate to the discourses that was emerging in, in theory of reference and stuff at that time. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, if he's going to this cosmic transubstantiation, almost, it's almost like the soul inhabiting the body and stuff like this, almost a mystical view, like that is not going to fly with analytic theorists of reference of that period. Like yeah. he's a little, his mood is quite different. He never, and, and maybe this is true in general, if you think of Danto as an analytic philosopher, he's, you know, he's, he, it'll never resolve into a set of nifty definitions or like propositions or a, a beautifully constructed deductive argument or something like that. Yeah. He's, I mean, I don't really even think of him as an analytic philosopher in that sense. So he, in a way, I, I don't even know why he's characterized that way. I mean, I can't think of anything less like a work of analytic philosophy than Transfiguration of the Commonplace. I guess maybe it's just because of the, you know, he, the people he hung out with were all, were all analytic philosophers. Yes. And, you know, he wrote a whole series of books, Analytical Philosophy of History, Analytical Philosophy of Knowledge, Analytical Philosophy of Action. And he's always said he loved analytic philosophy over and over again. Yeah. But the stuff does not really read like analytic no. philosophy in its themes or in its approach, its methodological approaches either. Oh, and so and he brings, I mean, he brings a level of historical, art historical, specifically understanding and knowledge to bear that is simply unimaginable in almost any other analytic philosopher. Um, analytic philosophers just are notoriously poor historians. In absolutely. Part, in part because they don't think it's relevant. They don't think history is yeah. relevant. And for Danto, history is absolutely relevant because... The, and this this maybe will segue us to the next sort of next thing I wanted to talk about. History is essential to being able to ascribe certain intentions that then make it possible to interpret things various ways. There's a reason why I can interpret an object made by Picasso in ways that I could not interpret an object made by Cezanne, which is an example that comes straight out of Transfiguration of the Commonplace. Yes. And it's because of the historical context in which Cezanne is working versus the one in which Picasso is working. And thus, the philosopher of art must know the history in order to do his job, right? In order to do it properly. Um, um, yeah, yeah. He's amazing that way. And he's such a brilliant art critic. I mean, the stuff in the nation, uh, that's about as good as art criticism got in that period. I agree. And, you know, and such a wonderful, rich writer. I mean, even in cases where you're, I, I'm often very frustrated trying to tease out the theory, but I'm delighted by the writing. But yeah, just, I mean, he thrilled me reading this book in the 80s with how much art history was in it. I can't and, believe it, yeah. yeah I, I know, and liter literary history and all kinds of stuff, really. It's like the man knows everything. I mean, it, yes. it, you know, the, the references, the allusions, there are almost no arguments in it. It's all these creatively yes. created um, um, uh, thought experiments, some of them based on, re that are real, some of them to where you almost get confused, right? Whether yes, very much so. Somebody or whether, it's, it's absolutely, uh, I always tell people when I teach this, I say, I, said, I, I, I cut off a limb to be able to write this well. Me too. <laughs> yeah, me too, man. I, and I got to say, that's what, I talk to him about that a lot. That's what we talk to you about more than anything. About craft? About the craft? About writing. Yeah. What did, uh, he, what did he say? I mean, how did you? I, this is one way we bonded, like the first time we actually met at some conference was 
um, I talked to him about passages he had written where he said what a pleasure it was to write philosophy, how much he enjoyed it. And I just said that, and I said, like, Arthur, that's some of the best stuff I ever wrote. Like, I, I, ever, I ever read. I have a, I really enjoy this. You know, and then we go on to this long thing where we sort of like start analyzing people's prose styles or maybe just whining about academic writing, you know, like just saying like if people were having more fun writing this stuff, it'd be more fun reading this stuff, you know, and he was really kind of like he was really focused on that, like the way people were writing and how, yeah. uh, you know, how impoverished it was and how difficult it was to read. You know, to be fair, though, and I mean, this is sort of, sort of a major uh, source of, of, of my, you know, lingering ongoing depression, is that only, only the people of that level are allowed to write that way. I mean, you know, part of the reason why the writing in philosophy is so shitty is because you go ahead and try and write something with a lot of personality and get it published in a journal. I just had a paper rejected for its tone, right? I mean, these fucking... You're telling my life story, man. ...address the substance of the goddamn thing, yeah. and the tone was on purpose to make the thing enjoyable to read, right? Um, and so... Do you think I might ha I might have similar experiences going, man? Like, should, yeah. We should commiserate, right? I mean... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is why yeah. I turned to a lot of public writing. It's why I published my own magazine. It's why, because I'm... I don't want to... I'm finally a good writer. I completely agree with you. <laughs> Right, and so did Danto. Okay, uh, and and you know that, and he cared so much about his writing, and I, uh, that's what I. That's one thing I yeah. just love about him so much. Even though I disagree with so much that he wrote or whatever. I'm yeah. sorry, but we got it off of the. No, no, no. This is great. Though. I mean, this is a, this is what makes these things interesting. I mean, um, so so let's talk a little bit about just a little bit about the conditions of interpretability, and then we can shift gears. Um, uh, maybe a talk about about the whole end of art thesis and all that. Um, okay. So one of the things that really influenced Dante, and I'm curious what you think about the role that this plays. So there's, I guess maybe prior to Dante, a somewhat obscure art historian named Heinrich Wolflin. Yes, Verflin. Right, Verflin. One of my favorite writers. Verflin. Um, um, for people who don't uh, have any idea who this is, one of his major contributions, Verflin's, was. Uh, the concepts of uh, different concepts of style, period, period style, national style, um, um, painterly versus linear, all of these sorts of this conceptual for apparatus. Yeah, we talked about this with regard to entanglements. Oh yeah, that's linear right. Linear painterly. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, so they've heard it. The audience has heard it yeah. once before. Um, and Don, but what Danto really found interesting in Wolflin was a stray line in which Wolflin says something to the effect of it's only impossible to intend certain things at certain times in certain places. And Danto yeah. is trying to understand how it is, what are the constraints and conditions that are involved in interpreting something a certain way? First of all, interpreting it at all. And secondly, interpreting it as meaning this, that, or the other. Right. Danto was convinced that interpretation is ultimately a function of intention, but that intention is constrained in all sorts of ways by context, both what it's possible to intend and what it's possible for people to understand by some performance or by some expression. Yes. Um, maybe you want to talk a little bit about 
how all of that works in Dante's philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say he had a strongly historical conception of art in that way. Um, so, I mean, he asked this question over and over again is, you know, like, okay, you can't have, you could not have had an abstract expressionist work of art in 18, even 1870. You know what I mean? Uh, in fact, you couldn't have had an abstract work of art at all in 1870, or you might have got, you might have been doing the first one or something like that. Can you maybe talk about why? Because it's not obvious, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, you often hear the expression, oh, he was ahead of his time. Um, you hear things like, you hear, you, hear, you hear things like El Greco was a proto-impressionist. Um, right. What is Danto getting at? And, do, do you, and also, do you think he's right, or do you think that this is overstated? I mean, maybe talk through it critically a little bit. Well, it's, it's quite true that you can't imagine certain things as works of art in one era that could be in others. Uh, so that you could think of art as historicized in that sense, in almost a Hegelian sense, that, you know, what's possible within the whole culture in a way uh, is, it could be a totally different in 50 years. So why so, couldn't you have an abstract, if I found some object yeah. yes. in, in, in Renoir's uh, study, and it looks a hell of a lot like an abstract expressionist painting, why... That's not possible, too. Why yeah. odds are, is it that that's not a painting, but something that he used to sort of for the drippings of his brush. Talk me through the Dantonian argument. Because again, in this text, what we were talking about before, there is no atmosphere of interpretation that exists in, you know, 1870 when Renoir is working uh, that would make that comprehensible as an art project. So for example, it would be hard to say, although you could eventually get a story going, I, I suppose, how that responds to, uh, say, the state of art at that time. Or it would be incomprehensible trying to reconstruct the intentions of the artist. That's doing, doing an abstract expressionist work in 1870 would be impossible. Or, you know, you could tell a story where it would make sense, but then you would have changed the history of art or something like that. Okay, so let's, uh, let's, let's talk to one piece of that because that's, re that's really important, what, what you just said. So, <sighs> Donta thinks that when somebody presents an object in interpreting it, what we're trying to do is reconstruct their intentions, right? Yes, although that, that puzzles me that he says that, yes, but yes, that is... Wait, why does it puzzle you? What we're doing, or a key, a key dimension of what we're doing. Okay. Yeah. Right, because most of the time we don't know what the artist actually intended because he doesn't tell us and he's dead. And so Danto puts a lot of stock in the question, what, what could he have intended? Yes. Right? And when you ask that, then things like the constraints of the time and the place are going to play a role in what it's plausible to say he could have intended and not. Is that what you're... Right, and that's key to doing art history of any period. Okay, so what could have, you know, could painters have intended by a certain symbol or a certain like looseness of handling or something, uh, or by, you know, in, in 1750 or in 1680, if it's El Greco or something like that. What are the possible intentions? Well, that's a public matter in part. You know, it's not, it's, it's not simply a matter of you could select anything and make anything into a work of art at any time. I mean, you know, Warhol's Brillo Box can become a work of art in 1964. 
but it, it couldn't have before because the, the historical unfolding of the concept of art wouldn't have made it possible to form the intention to interpret the Brillo box as a work of art. I mean, it's, so it's a very wide, like historical flavor of the whole period or something. Right. Right. Like, again, this is kind of how uh, Danto's views connect to Hegel's, for example. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a little puzzled by the way he focuses so heavily on intention because of his own treatment of philosophy history and narrative sentences. He's, he's completely obsessed by sentences like this. The Thirty Years' War started in 1618. Okay, that's not something that nobody could have known in 1618. I hope I got You're right. You see what I mean? It doesn't matter. Yeah, but I, right. it becomes true retroactively, and so you could give an exhaustive description of what could be known in 1618, and that wouldn't be in there. Right. And you know that about 1618, and so, and that is kind of Hegelian too. So now the later narratives sweep up and give to previous works or, you know, objects of any sort, properties that they did not have at the moment that they emerged. And I would have thought that that would move you a little off the intention of the artist and what could be, um, you know, achieved at a given moment and also at least to expand toward various contexts of interpretation that emerge later around the work and stuff. Yeah, I almost wonder whether his his fixation with intention is precisely where we do see that he's an analytic philosopher um, and that he's been caught up in the whole Davidson, um, Anscombe sort of arc of, 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 of in the philosophy of action. Um, yeah, like Grice on meaning and things like that. That's right, that's, and Grice on meaning, that's right. Yeah. Um, um, implicature, you know, that, that sort of, that sort of, Danto is very much almost treating artworks like speech acts, right? Yes. Um, 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 it's a little surprising because I think he has equipment to do something a little richer, more complex. I, I, I tend to agree with that. Um, um, but let me just stick on this thing about, um, about, uh, about, um, about what it's possible to intend and being constrained by time and space. So, look, there's a very straightforward sense in which I could see that something like pop art, okay, so something like, like the Brilla Boxes, um, if you asked me, if I said to you, you know, you could, it's not possible, you know, if I found some object in Van Eyck's studio that looked a hell, of, you know, that looked a hell of a lot like, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a ready-made, um, it would not be reasonable to ascribe it to that object because um, you can't imagine the Brillo boxes phenomenon without industrialization and mass production, right? I mean, I mean, half half the point of it is to sort of blur the line between mass-produced commercial objects and fine sure. arts. Okay. And so there's a very, very clear sense in which in a pre-industrial society, certain kinds of ideas can't happen, right? Because they right. revolve around industrialization. Sure. It's less clear to me, though, why something like that's more of a stylistic um, uh, uh, innovation um, is something that can be bound in quite the same way. So that when I say that... Um, a Cezanne or a Renoir couldn't have had abstract expressionisty uh, um, 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 ideas. Um, that becomes a little more obscure to me, and part of the reason, <clears throat> precisely because I can think of so many artists that do seem to be ahead of their time in that way, yeah. like, like um, El Greco. But I'll go even more radical than that. I mean, I went to a very interesting exhibition of of Roman Egyptians, so this is would have been 
in Egypt during the Roman during the period of the Roman Empire when Egypt was part of it, um, uh, sarcophagus paintings. Okay. They are impressionist in terms of the style. <laughs> in terms of the style, the realization, how it's done, they're impressionist. I mean, I've got, I don't think I have any hanging here, but yeah. I mean, I've got a whole book full of them. Um, well, in some sense, they're impressionist. I mean, they may resemble impressionist paintings. In terms, in terms of the way that they're executed, they're not yes, rendered. Seriously. Yeah, right. So, yes. So the question is... But they, but they can't mean what impressionism meant in 1875, right? As, as, as impressionism emerges in the context of like a rebellion against the academic painting of that period, you know? But that's only one thing it was about. I mean, it was also about trying to paint objects as they're actually seen by the eye and not as they're sure. seen. That's now, an ancient, an ancient past. Right. Is it not that something, you know, in other words, does it get a little, yeah. does it get a little trickier to make this X couldn't have possibly intended Y by Z right. when you're not talking about things that are, that are these clear references to historical events like the industrial revolution or like the, you know, the second world war. Um, 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 obviously I can't have, intentions to make paintings about the cold war in the 1800s when there's no cold war right, right but of course does is it does is it less convincing yeah. when, it's, when you try to apply it or do you think it's well applied across i i think that you have to apply it subtly and he often did actually when he went on these kind of excursions uh art historical excursions i mean what you can imagine to what extent when Especially, like you say, if you move off of just the, the larger historical developments that make something possible technologically or something. Um, I think it's a very complex story. But yes, I certainly overall agree that, you know, basically, Michelangelo could not have painted like Mondrian. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, like, like, it's just not, it wouldn't, you know, now Michelangelo could do many radical things. He could have done many more radical things that we don't even know about or something like that. But I don't think he could have done that. And even if he could have, it couldn't have meant what it meant in 1925 or something. Right, right. You know, right. So I think he's right about this. Like art has historically, um, its content is partly historically fixed in this way. You know. The part of the reason I'm pushing it so hard is because for Danto, you know, as we as we've seen through our conversation, in a sense, the artwork is its interpretation. It's constituted by its interpretations. That's in a sense the thing that transfigures yes. the mere thing into a work of art. And what that means is that it kind of matters what the interpretation is because if you misinterpret the artwork, you've literally turned it into something else, right? I mean, you've turned it into something other than it actually is. Right, and, you, and actually, I think you might have to know a lot about the context of the work in order to give a plausible interpretation, and this is true, right? In other words, like, if you don't really know who produced this, when, and what the art historical sort of context of it is, you're very unlikely to have a plausible interpretation of it. Yeah. You know? And so, like, and, and he, you know, he applied this extremely consistently in his own criticism, right? In other words, like, it's a matter of, you must contextualize the work to understand its context. Let's say, it as, and part of that is you must place it in its moment in art history and work on that context, you know? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but, but let me, but this is where I sort of want to push it a little bit. I mean, and so 
it seems to look even if we accept that this 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 construction of what it's possible to intend by x at any given time is is constrained by time and place it seems to me that those constraints nonetheless are going to pretty substantially underdetermine the possible interpretations right um and so sure. do, are you always in a situation of kind of dealing with a kind of a vague object in the sense that until the interpretation is fixed for danto the object doesn't have a determinate artistic identity right true and so do you wind up with a kind of um i don't know a lot of a lot of sort of vagueness right i mean um, um, um am i talking about this or am i talking really about something else or because i can't the context doesn't give me enough to to narrow these interpretations down to where I just have one, and therefore right. one artwork, right? Right, but maybe that's what's cool about art too. I mean, and isn't art history like that? In other words, you know, like we can argue about you know what Rembrandt is trying to do, or the you know then we can go into like ten years of research on the art market in seventeenth century Holland, you know. Um, and like, it's, I think it is a very difficult, subtle matter. And that is how you figure out what Rembrandt meant or could possibly have meant. But you think that's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. And I, I think maybe, I mean, it's a bug in the sense that you may never get the definitive answer, but it's a feature in the sense that you may never have to stop playing in a way. You know what I mean? Like these are very rich objects. Yeah, you know, Danto shows that as well as anybody, and like I say, in his criticism. Yeah, it's like yeah. you could, you know, and maybe it's their part of their importance is their ambiguity or the way they potentially sustain multiple interpretations, hopefully not mutually incompatible interpretations, um, ultimately in some sense. But you know, and how hard it is to get to a globally plausible interpretation of say any masterpiece of art or something like that. Like it really, you have to really work it psychologically about the artist, maybe massively contextually about the culture, about the art world, the patronage systems, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that can be relevant to trying to figure out what a work means in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one more thing along these lines and that goes in the other direction. And that is Danto, and so this, this, the, what I'm talking about now is in his book, The Philosophical Disenfranchisement of Art, um, where he's got two chapters devoted to this question of the interpretation of artworks and their actual identity as artworks. Um, is it possible that maybe he's too constrained in the interpretations that he allows? Because one of the things that he's going to say there is that, look, if it's not something the artist could have possibly intended, then the interpretation's incorrect, right? Um, um, and constitutes a misidentification of the object. I mean, he says this quite explicitly. Yeah. So he explicitly rules out things like Marxist and psychoanalytical and feminist interpretations as just being plain anachronisms, right? As, as interpreting objects in light of intentions that their makers could not have had. And I'm wondering what you think about that side of it, because that is the other yeah. side of his intentionalism, right? I'm just puzzled by that. I mean, I gotta say, like, I'm puzzled by it in the context of the rest of his philosophy. I, I, I just don't, 
I think he's got a million ways you to see why it. he says it, though, right? Because he does not want the object to have an indeterminate identity. And if any interpretation can be given and is not constrained by what the artist could have intended, then literally the object can mean anything. And if it means anything, well, then, it can be any, then it can be any artwork, right? No, no, no. But, but it, look, no, that's a false dilemma. So the, and, and this is, I, I, I would have hoped this would be Danto's considered position. Um, it's not fixed, the meaning of the work, it does not have to drift into total indefiniteness or relative, relativity just if you reject the intention of the artist as fixing the meaning. You might think that the intention of the artist is relevant to some extent, but the whole context in which that intention could be developed, and, you know, in other words, like, so think about Wittgenstein on meaning. What I mean by what I say is not simply what I intend. The public language has all these constraints on what I could possibly mean and actually what I do mean. Right. I could be wrong about what I mean right. uh, and stuff like this, given the public, uh, the standards of public discourse and so on. Uh, I can make an assertion, make it flatly and not think I'm making it and things like this. And I think that's exactly how Danto should treat meaning. I'm a little surprised that he doesn't. I, I think he does in a way. Well, but, what he says is that... So, so it's, a publicly, it's publicly fixed. There are some standards. There, there's true... You can make false statements about what a work of art means. Um, now, I mean, for Danto, one way into that is what did the artist intend? But then surely he also means what did the art, could the artist possibly have intended at a given historical moment right. that, right. but that's, that's not gonna, it's not going to be possible that an artist that the guy who wrote beowulf had feminist intentions right right it's not possible sure. and so that's going to rule out a whole class or genre of, an, of right. criticism i.e feminist criticism which purports to have relevant things to say about every period of art not just well, modern ones right and the same beowulf thing might be interesting on gender though you know Oh, I didn't say it wouldn't be interesting. What I'm saying is that Danto leaves no, Danto's theory leaves no room for it, right? In other words, because Danto wants interpretation to be constrained in ways that render it factual, right? Right. I mean, he, he's very explicit about this. Without that, he even says the expression, you know, anything goes. He says, if right. without it, you're in a quiny and indeterminacy of translation situation. Right. right. Um, um, and what I wanted to know is, is that too constrained, right? Um, 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 do we want... Yeah, it's far too constrained, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah I would think you would. Um, yeah. um, um. Right, and I, I definitely think, and I, the funny thing is I think Danto thought, thought this too. People can be wrong about their own intentions. Why did, he, why, did he exert, why did he... People can do things they don't intend to do. You know, well, I and there's going to be meaningful things. I agree, but why did, was he so insistent? Do you think he was so worried about sort of postmodernist uh, postmodernist game playing? Maybe so. I'm not sure where the intention, intentionalism comes from in Danto. It's surprising, and it's not necessarily that compatible with a lot of what else he does. Yeah. The broader historicism yeah. that he wants to manifest. Yeah. I mean, he hang out with Stanley Cavell. Like, Cavell could have helped him on these issues, for example, you know, or et cetera. But anyway. We should do a whole other dialogue. C Cavell is <laughs> one of the best, right? I mean, and nobody knows who he is. Um, um, I have to go review I mean, Cavell and Sellers, in my mind, are two of the most underrated, underappreciated, and in my view, 
could really help analytic philosophy right now. Analytic okay. philosophy, I think, is in one of the worst conditions it's ever been. Huh. Um, 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 mostly just How come? Because, because of its scientism. Agreed. Um, um, because it violates Seller's first law, and that is don't try to piecemeal and port pieces of the scientific image into the, into the manifest image. <laughs> um, um, okay. Let's last thing. Let's just finish on this. Cause every it's, it's the, everybody talks about it. Like you said at the beginning, Danto lamented getting saddled with it. I think of this as sort of Danto's clockwork orange. Um, um, Burgess lamented how he, how nobody ever had talked about anything else he fucking wrote after Clockwork Orange, and it's by no means his greatest work. Um, um, uh, although it's a, it is. it's the only one I've read. You've never read Earthly Powers? No. You must read Earthly Powers. Okay. All right. All right. You must. You must. Uh, I order you. I'm going to send it to you. I'm going to order it from Amazon and have it delivered to you so that you'll read it. I mean, one of my favorite books. Anyway, um, and the end of our thesis. Okay. Yes. Could you tell us what it is? And how, it, and to the extent to which you can connect it to the stuff we've already been saying about Danto, do so. Tell me about, tell us about the end of our thesis. It's not going to work with the intentionalism, I think, for one. No, of course not. But the rest yeah, of it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So it's a it's a view that was originally stated by Hegel. Uh, you know, and that Danto swipes explicitly from Hegel, quoting Hegel, basically saying that. And, and this is typical of Hegel on a number of matters. Art has a certain goal, a purpose. It's a teleological project. For Hegel, that is providing a route between the material and the spiritual. And really, this is going to sound a little like the transfiguration of the commonplace again. Um, and once art gets as good as it can possibly get at doing that, and actually Hegel thought that maybe romantic art did that, uh, then there's no further place for it to go. It's realized its goal. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of picture of history as a whole as so teleological or, teleologically ordered that it makes sense for it to come to an end in the sense of a culmination, a self-realization. So nothing more after after Goethe, you can just pack it in, sort of. Yeah, yeah maybe so. <laughs> or no, I, I really think he thinks after himself. Hey, after oh, of course, well, yes. <laughs> that's, that's when I mean the whole purpose of human history was to reach self consciousness, for mm -hmm. God to reach self consciousness. Is there actually an argument for that, or is it, I mean, what? <laughs> why would I, why should I think that's true? Like I mean. You can't deny that, man. The purpose of human history is for God to reach self-consciousness. Yeah, seriously, I mean, to the extent to which it's possible, I mean, Hegel is obviously vast and impenetrable, but what reason is there to think that self-consciousness, the attainment of self-consciousness, it represents the end point for beings like us? What is, what is, what, what's the idea behind that? It's a very kind of weird, don't you think? Well, I mean, I reject it, certainly, but I mean... What's the idea way, Like. He's not going to argue, Hegel is not going to argue for that. What he's going to do is like try to narrate all of history in a way where it suddenly falls into place and makes sense of like, you know, thousands of years sweep of human events on this view of what history is. It's the attempt of God to reach self-consciousness in us or something like that. So is it almost like a working hypothesis? Like, hey, look, let's do this. And... 
let's see what the history looks like if we do it this way. And, and, and if it's really compelling, you know, we might think, hey, this is how it is, right? I mean, is yeah, that I kind of think so, maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I mean, fair enough. Lord knows where it comes from. It, it's a religious orientation in some way, maybe. Yeah, it's crazy Germans. You know, Scotsman could ever come up with something like this, right? I mean, it's... Just... Well, but the power of it is, is in how well it helps you account for history. Yeah. And how suddenly, like, I think people reading Hegel in 18-whatever that was, reading his philosophy of history, might have had suddenly the click feeling, now I see what the whole thing is. Yeah. Now, and if it gives you that feeling, then you, you think, wow, that's a very powerful set of ideas. Something to be said for it then, right? Yes. Yeah. And so, like, let's at least play with this, okay? So, like, you're Marx, and you're going, like, all right, but something is wrong here, you know, like, but this project is what an amazing project or something. But anyway, okay, so Danto, um, so, so again, for Hegel, the purpose of art is this kind of, it's a transitional phase from the material to this, in this unfolding self-consciousness that history is, art is a transitional phase from a more materialistic to a more spiritual that's what art does. It takes material and it nudges it toward a more spiritual thing. But we could historically get beyond where we need that because we've entered into the spiritual realm So, and we no longer need the material helps to get there. You see what I mean? And so then art is finished. So it's something manifest in our relations then? Yes, maybe so. Or in, yes. our, or in the institutions we build, in the, in, the fr- in, the, in the world we build in a sense? The world will become art in a sense? Uh, maybe so. Maybe so. I haven't really pictured. I'm not sure what Hegel, where Hegel thinks we end up exactly. Um, now, Danto takes an amazing amount of that in a way, and and I, I must say, I think this is limited to what we might call high art from, say, the Renaissance or somewhat after that even to the postmodern period. It's an attempt to describe this the shape of art historically from like i say maybe renaissance to 1960 and danto the same thing with the brillo boxes where he walks into uh the gallery and suddenly realizes what art is okay because it can't be something you see etc 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 because the brillo box is identical when warhol puts the brillo boxes in the museum that's the moment art ends that's the way Danto kind of at least plays with that moment. He's freaking obsessed with the Brillo box, man. Like it never ends, never stops. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, the 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 expression he uses to describe this 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 directional arc of art history is a history of erasures, right? Um, um, so right. I'm thinking of what he, the way he puts it in this his book Beyond the Brillo Box. He talks about art history as a sort of a history of erasures, starting from the Renaissance on. Yes. Uh, Every generation or, or era, pieces, elements were removed that were not essential, right? To the, which is why the art gets more and yes. more abstract. Yes. Until, in a sense, the art disappears. It's the mere act of art making that's, that's all that's left, right? Well, this is his view, and it's remarkably difficult, I would say, to pay off on in a way. Art has been, at least since the Renaissance or somewhat later again, the search for its own essence. It, the purpose of art, and this is again and again, man, it's self-consciousness again, right. is the purpose of art historically 
has been to figure out what art is. And then the history of art, right, you look at as a series of refutations of the previous pictures of what art is. You know, so art does not have to be figurative. We do an abstract work and we show that art is not an imitation of reality after all. You know, we do a, a emotionally blank work and we show that art is not the expression of emotion at all. And then we refute theory after theory after theory. That's a philosophical project, right? It's like a scientific project in a way. Like we're, and then, okay, at the moment where Warhol shows that there is no visible difference between a work of art and a mere real thing, then there's nothing in the object it's, that is, shows its arthood. And art becomes this abstract matter. Like it is like Warhol offered a definition of art, not a work of art. Yeah. And because I guess the definition of art maybe is the correct one. Art has been the quest for its own essence. It figured out with things like ready-mades and pop art, what its own essence was. It, and at that moment it became its own philosophy. Okay. And I think Hegel kind of thinks this too. Uh, the art will, will become its own philosophy. And then there's no further development anymore. That whole thing of serial erasures, that is art history, okay? Like, that gives it a historical shape. Right. Now, that history is over because art discovered its own essence or came to self-consciousness. Again, maybe in Danto's own work, <laughs> as in Hegel's own work or something. And uh, so you might have art making after that, but it won't have the same historical oomph. It won't be driving history forward. And the last works that drove history forward were the 20th century avant-garde works. And like Danto says, things like, what a privilege it was to live in history but now, and live in art history. But now that's over, man. So what characterize? I mean, this is going to sound weird, but I mean, what characterizes a post-historical period? And as, as weird as it sounds, how long does a post-historical... In other words, is this something where what will happen is eventually a new historical cycle will begin and we'll get a whole new art history? Or is this just what you only get one shot at this, and once you're in the post-historical, it's post-historical forever after, I guess is what, what, what I want, one thing that I wonder. I used to press him on this kind of stuff, and I, I'm not sure that I ever got like an answer that satisfied me. They were very what's subtle. Your, what's your view? I mean, well, okay, he certainly characterized post-historical art as eclectic. I mean, basically, in other words, we've been in an eclectic phase since the '60s for Danto, because there's no particular telos, there's no avant-garde that's the furthest forward, because there's no more historical progression. Now, I don't think he, I, th I think he thought, you know, as long as you have people, they're going to be making stuff. But basically this concept of art, to mean something other than craft or skill or something like that, like this, the high art concept that we were trying to define in philosophy, I think he thinks it's not really possible to do that anymore. That that historical phase is no longer available. You can do like neo expressionism, neo-pop, and people do, you know, yeah. uh, neo-impressionism or whatever it might be. But 
you're no longer in the history of art, which is over. Yeah, and the reason I'm sort of asking about this is that I'm above two minds. On one hand, I'm sort of not really inclined to accept this picture. But on the other hand, I almost think that if the picture is true, it explains an awful lot beyond art history, right? I mean, there's something about the post-Cold War world which just strikes me as being a kind of relatively desultory, bleak, and and it could and sort of unendingly so. I mean, just in a sense, something got exhausted. Nothing is going to replace it, and we're just going to just just sort of it's just going to be endless iterations on hipsters, sort of recycling everything, right? Um, and I almost wonder whether you know. So I'm sort of of two minds about this. On the one hand, I think well, that that really can't be right. On the other hand, I think God, if it was right. It really does this explain why everything is just so meh, you know? I mean, it's just sort of, you know, um, um, whether it's music or art or culture more generally or politics or, I mean, you could say we're post-political after the Cold War, right? Um, sure, right, like post-historical, the idea, you know, the Fukuyama end of history thesis. It might be that, was a kind of a, that was a kind of triumphalist version. Right, true. Like me as being foolish, right? Uh, embarrassing. Um, but there's a non-triumphalist version that's kind of, sobering right i mean right it's sort of the same period though too i mean so in other words like i think people got absolutely obsessed by the end uh, people were doing the end of everything back then man. Yeah, remember, remember remember y2k remember remember oh, yeah. we were gonna yeah, have to like, get a meltdown i mean it was like <laughs> yeah but everyone was doing the end of everything you know i'm trying to think of some other examples but the end of history the end of art the end of uh i don't know but um it's like all the rational people turn into religious cultists. The world's going to end, right? You know, and... and, and <laughs> I don't know how rational it were, but anyway, but yeah. Okay, so, yes, I think it's a very compelling account of a certain section of art history, for example, okay? Or the concept of high art as opposed to all the things that art might be opposed to, like craft, okay, skill. These are the... Techne in Greek means craft or skill, right? There's no concept of high art, I don't think, in the Greeks. Not exactly. No, uh, if you read Christeller, Christeller traces yeah. the concept of the fine arts basically to the Enlightenment. It's it's basically right. roughly back to the to the modern to the beginning of the modern era. Yeah, yeah and I think Danto was working with Christeller at Columbia in his youth as well. Um, and so and and so like the idea of art as this high sort of separate sphere of culture you know like the difference between popular art popular uh um music and you know art music classical music or something like that or between decorative arts and fine arts yes, exactly typical all, you know. all those distinctions yes yeah, yeah um i think they arise at a certain moment in europe and i think they probably fade out or or die in the 20th century to some extent partly because artists themselves can't stand them anymore. So you can see that, I mean, obviously Warhol, for example, he's pointedly trying to break those distinctions out completely. Even right? the way the Brillo boxes were displayed was meant to simulate how they'd be displayed in a supermarket, not in a, not in a museum. Right. And so he's kind of saying like this high art thing, Cage was the same way in music, right? Like they, they almost hate their own distinction as artists from the culture, wider culture. And I think that, I mean, so I think that did come to an end kind of, you know, and if we think of that as art, and it was maybe the concept of art that all these people were trying to define in philosophy and stuff, what makes a symphony 
you know, different than a bunch of noise or different than a folk song, you know. Um, I think maybe that did collapse in a way right around the 60s. And, but I think also you could think of that as liberatory as well in the sense that now a lot of things are possible. Like now we don't, to be a serious painter doesn't mean that you can't be figurative, for instance. Do you see what I mean? Like, in other words, it's, it could be very liberating in the sense that anything is permitted. You don't have to, to be an artist, you don't have to locate yourself at the front of this historical progression. And it could also signal kind of a reintegration of this high art thing, whatever the hell it is, because I think it's a very problematic notion and indefinable as it turned out. Um, could represent a reintegration of, with other forms of human making and stuff like that. So I kind of look at it as a hopeful, if that was the end of art history or something in 64, when Danto walked into the art gallery and saw the Brillo box, I kind of view it as a potentially liberating. Yeah. You know, but I come along from the next generation too, you know. Yeah, and you're, and you're an anarchist. So you, you intrinsically, yeah. you know, this, what you just said, I could now have two more hours of conversation just on this because this is so interesting. And it just, so let me just throw out a few things because I don't want to go too, we don't want to go too long, but let me just throw a few things just in reaction to what you just said. Um, and they're going to be scattered. So one thing that just struck me, you know, a lot of people are saying now about, about the current state of, of music, that it's liberated in the way that you've just described, that it's a damn good thing that the, yeah. record, that the record industry and all this sort of stuff, that the back of it's been broken, that now you have Pro Tools and all these things that make it possible for everybody and his brother. You, you, have a, you might hear me saying stuff like that. Right, right. right. Now, yeah. I, and maybe this is just because I'm, at the end of the day, some curmudgeon conservative. Um, I, I, I actually think it's been a terrible development. Um, um, and, and I think because at the end of the day, I don't believe that a million cottage industries are better than uh, Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, King Crimson. Um, you know, in, in other in other words, in other words, you have a lot of really good stuff and you have nothing great. I'm, 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 and that's partly because of the kind of of kind of uh, infrastructure that that these people have available. But I think it also even maybe has has to do with a certain kind of myth making that comes with yes. a certain kind of historical uh, uh, historical. Uh, arc that yes. is necessary to to in a sense give something a certain quality of a specialness i mean i just can't get as excited about a hipster band in their garage making stuff that's really good um as i can about you know uh the the great music from the right. from, from the industry right right and I mean, with film and the same with everything else. So I see the argument for why it's a good development, but at the end of the day, I, I, I don't think it's really good that we don't really have any professional music anymore <laughs> of, of the sort of, of the sort of generation defining quality that it used to be able to have. Right. Right. I'm not sure that's quite true. I mean, you know, it, like I'm going Kendrick Lamar or whatever, but, but not, not to worry about that. That's certainly Danto was Danto's feeling too. Like one thing is we I will. I think he lamented it. What's that? He lamented the end of our. Yes, I, he did. He did he, explicitly. Okay. Uh, yeah, he did. Like you know, he said things like, "What a privilege it was to have lived in history," and things like this. And one thing was like, "We'll never have Picassos again, will we? Like, who's going to be a Matisse 
Where's that's the bad? That's bad, right? Where's Leonardo coming from? Where? Who's the Van Gogh? And that's, that's not only a matter. It's a, it's partly a matter of how we're narrating the history, like how we pick something out, and then um, you know, as you say, it might be not just the sheer quality of the Rolling Stones. It's also the the myth making that surrounds. And we could think of this. This is essential to modernism, art, artistic modernism. And maybe rock and roll, like classic rock, is a kind of modernist art in a sense. Like these are the great innovators. There's only a few of them. We yeah. can narrate the history one to the next, the influences, the rejections, you know, and it's a fairly – and what you get instead is just a sprawling thing where everybody's doing all kinds of stuff. There's no furthest forward there are no heroes of the sort that, you know, or even it's because the artist himself has to feel a part of a history like that in order to be able to reach the levels that artists that used to be able to, in other, in other words, that yeah. there's, something, there's something inherently desultory a little bit about knowing you're in a post-historical. Right. True. No, that's, that's quite true. You can have the ambition to become like, you know, maybe Hemingway had the ambition to become Hemingway. Do you see what I mean? But that's not hardly an ambition you can even form anymore unless you're not, you don't know what's going on yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, now, let me just say, like, I think there were terrible, terrible things about that whole modernist thing. Okay. I think most people that were as good as those people just flopped. Okay. I think a lot of the, the promotions were arbitrary, which is not to say that none of them were deserved at all or something like that. A lot of worthy people get left out because yes. of the institutional structure yes, and all the politics that go into institutional structures. Completely, yeah. in an extreme yeah. way. So yeah. I was working as a rock critic in the 80s and, and 90s and stuff, and you wouldn't believe how many artists told me that, you know, they, the greatest moment of their life was when they signed with Columbia or when they signed with, you know, Warner. And that then Warner owned their catalog and never released their record for five years and wouldn't permit them to record for somebody else. Incredibly abusive system. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, and I often thought that records being made by sort of second tier artists were at least as good as the ones being made by first tier artists. And a lot of the promotions to the first tier were struck me as arbitrary. I also think that we, one thing that went with modernism was a kind of hero worship that I find absurd and dangerous. Like, I think we promote these people to the status of gods, actually. Right. You know, like, who knows what Picasso is? Well, I'm telling you, he's just this dude running around throwing paint around, actually. And actually a pretty fucking horrible dude. I mean, that, that's yeah, the sure. that you then yes. set, set up the whole culture for this sort of falls, right? I mean, sure. we're going through this now, this sort of series of spectacular falls. I mean, right. you told me 30 years ago that, 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 that Bill Cosby's name would be shit. Yeah. I would have laughed at you. I would have said, what are you talking about? I mean, one of the greatest stand-up comedians and single-handedly transformed black television. And what a wholesome guy. From ghetto television until, until you know, in other, you know, I could make the case that he was essential to breaking of, of very crippling stereotypes about black people. Um, and now, I mean, all that's erased um, right. because people can't stomach even the thought of, of looking at any of his, watching any of his stuff. I think that's a mistake, by the way, but I mean, that's yeah. an issue. Um, but, so I agree. Yeah, I tend to look at the positive aspects of some of this breakdown yeah, of cultural yeah, biology. Yeah, yeah, no, they're fair enough, and and that's why I wasn't very confident in my statement. I mean, it just I just have this nagging feeling that, right, 
But well, you're underestimating how much we've lost by, by, right. by losing the historical narrative. Um, um, the other thing I was going to say, and maybe we'll finish on this, just to give me your reaction to this, um, and that is that um, I'm wondering if what's ultimately wrong with the, with the end of art thesis is essentially what was wrong with delineating off this separate branch from craft of fine arts. In other words, if you go back to Aristotle, um, to the poetics, there is no, there's no, there's no category of fine arts. What there is, is the distinction between art and nature, right? Um, yes. Within the arts, he has this delineation of what he calls the imitative arts, which include things like poetry and painting and, 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 and certain other of the things that would later come under the fine art category. Right. Um, but I almost wonder whether, in a sense, the creation of the fine arts in the modern era was a mistake that then created a history that should never have gotten created, a separate history from the rest, right? Because, you know, when I go to the museum, I spend as much time looking at the tapestries and the furniture as I do at the paintings, and I don't know that my experience is inferior. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know yeah. that I think there's a value in separating or distinguishing the experiences. Right. And actually more and more museums are integrating those things. Like the Philadelphia Museum, I'll right. say, is really concertedly doing that, like the decorative arts and right. the crafts. And, and so like I think in a sense the end of art thesis yeah. is the result of an initial mistake that got made, right? I, you know, I've argued this in a series of books, man, and papers and stuff like that completely. Well, we'll link to them if, you, if, that, yeah. if that indeed is the case. Uh, I mean, maybe probably my first book, The uh, Art of Living, I mean, basically, I'm just trying to say that, you know, I mean, I basically identify art as craft in that book. And yes, my idea was that the concept of fine art, I mean, I think that one of the first times you really see this clearly elaborated is in Kant, actually, um, is really is a mistake. And it turned out, like, it turned out not to be explicable. It turned out not to be distinguishable in principle, and that's what the history of these definitions shows. Those were attempts to define this fine art conception of, of art and, and distinguish it from all these other activities. It failed over and over and over again. And I absolutely think that's because it was a bad concept. And I think it had kind of disastrous, I mean, it's a class, it's a classed concept. You know, uh, it's, you know, it's a way of waving off most of what most people make as important or significant in certain ways. And I really think it was a mistake. And so if it collapses, and that's the way maybe I read Danto's end of art, art history, to me that's a promising development because it was conceptually indefensible to begin with. If what it does is returns the fine arts to the broader category of the crafts on a yes. multiple footing, then that would, that's a good thing. Yes, I think so. Um, but, yeah. but the sense in which it's a bad thing may be the contingent, unfortunate fact that because we created this artificial history, we also created all these very powerful institutions, sure. without sure. which now it's <laughs> hard to do things that are big and lasting. And, 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 and sure. in a sense, we really, really went down a, a, a bad road that now, not to saddle us with things, but in a sense... But many great things, many great things were made on, along that road. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so like that question is now, can, can we make those kinds of things anymore? 
you know, and that would be a terrible loss. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, can, can we create a new history maybe in a sense that has a healthier conception of the terrain and convince the existing institutions in a sense to jump on board. Right. Um, I think that is kind of happening. Could you, you know, say a few things about, give me some examples of where you see that sort of thing happening. Well, I mean, like I say, just like, I, I have to think about this a little harder, uh, but like just strolling through the Philadelphia Museum more and more every year, the decorative arts and the crafts are, you know, the, the works of high art, fine art, which are, you know, interpreted above all in terms of their genres, the paintings and the sculptures are more and more, uh, you know, integrated into a an aesthetic cultural context, you know, which is producing all these decorative objects, these useful objects and so on. Right. Or like the way, for example, classical or art music is incorporating maybe elements of pre-recorded sounds or sampling or bringing in, you know, or maybe like Wynton Marsalis is experimenting with all these different, you know, or somebody like that with all these electronic ways of producing sound. Like, I, it seems to me like, uh, and a lot of postmodern art in general, in a way, is working that cusp in various interesting ways and not necessarily eliminating, you know, the popular, the low, but bringing it in in one way or another, you know. Yeah. I think that's sort of the way the history is going right now. It's, it's funny. You know, one of the things that I always, one of the types of exhibitions I used to always like the best, and they've always had these, but maybe, maybe given what you're describing, this is going to become more the rule rather than the exception. I always enjoyed the exhibitions that were sort of civilizational rather than, rather than medium specific. And so you'd have something on, you know, the Ottoman, on the Ottoman to empire yeah. and its arts, and it would yeah. include all decorative objects military art objects as well as paintings and tapestries and and you'd have them all mixed together yes and i always liked it so much because you would really i i felt like in those you would get as close as you could to inhabiting another civilization as was possible yeah. for something that didn't exist anymore right i mean right so, and the key to that is like that the paintings themselves are not like an isolable, completely different realm of activity or something. Yeah. And, that, and that's kind of where Danto went wrong, I think, you know, like uh, uh, if we if we thought of art as a much broader concept of, that includes objects that we regard as much more ordinary, though man-made or whatever, human-made, um, you know, I think we, in, in that case, we, we couldn't define art in the style that Danto wants to define it in, you know? It would, it would have discouraged him from developing this very speech-acty view. Yes. Um, because while you can say that someone is essentially saying something when they make a painting, they're not saying something when they make a spoon, right? Um, um, for the, for <laughs> it may be. But not in the way, right. not in the way that is plausibly... The, given the Danto kind of line, um, <laughs> you'd, you'd have to have a much looser sense of saying something right. that I don't think would fit up with his intentionalism and all the stuff that maybe you're the mo most dubious about. Although you could make a spoon that was an incredibly rich cultural yeah. artifact, yeah. right? And it was intended to convey all sorts of things. Yeah. You know? I actually think that one of the biggest losses in Danto, and I think you know that this is ultimately reflected in his own tastes, if not in his philosophies, I don't think that it's meaningful really to talk about arts and not talk about the aesthetic. Um, and, huh. and I just, I think that once you get to an art, something that's no longer 
that the engagement with it is at no level aesthetic anymore. You're now out of, you're now, it's, it's philosophy now. And he even says art becomes philosophy. Yeah. And he at one other point says, and I would, you know, as, as good philosophy as Warhol is, I would trade all of it for one Giorgione painting. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the things about the spoon and about the tapestry is that the engagement is very rewardingly aesthetic in many cases, right? I mean, it really is. I mean, yes. these objects are just flat out beautiful. Yes. Or incredibly designed or, or just right. you know, where, 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 where the really the experience of it beyond eating with it uh, is, is yeah. at the level of beauty and experience, and I, I, I a lot of you know a lot of artists in the 20th century tried to draw late 20th century, like post historical maybe, try to draw our attention to that. Like there is a giant spoon at the is it the Walker Institute of Art? Oldenburg. Oldenburg, yeah, with this cherry on it and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Like suddenly you come out of that and you start looking at the spoons around you, going like, wow, you know that's that's actually a very beautiful, elegant object. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's what the way I would, or the way I went from this in that period was toward everyday aesthetics. Aestheticizing the everyday. In a yes, true. Um, um, and in his own way, Tolstoy tried to do this. I mean, Tolstoy, yeah. one of the reasons why he moves in the direction he does is he wants to re-enfranchise peasant, pre peasant production, right? I mean, yes. I mean uh, and get it away from these very high... Right. Or, or, you know, I kind of came at it from Dewey. It toward, you know, so like reconnecting the high art world to the larger context of human making. Like there's a lot of philosophers who do give you equipment for that. Tolstoy is a good example and Dewey. Like yeah. thinking of art not as a, a kind of sphere, an integral sphere of activity, but as, you know, a very wide scale cultural, encompassing a, a lot of cultural production of all kinds. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Crispin, I really appreciate this. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it, Dan, really, seriously. I enjoy doing it. Yeah, as you know, I love doing this. So, I mean, um, uh, I'm going to definitely bug you someday down the road again. Um, yeah, but thank you so much, and uh, best of luck with the rest of your semester. Thanks, you too. Have you already had midterms? Yeah, just graded out. Yeah, we just had ours too. So uh, we're now in the lull before the next... <laughs> good timing for this Onslaught. all right well thank you so much and uh, i'll talk to you soon and i will be emailing you to get links from you or for anything you want to link to especially you said uh, some of the things that you refer to of your own so that people can read more of your work okay thanks dan all right take care bye-bye thanks for listening to meaning of life tv you can help support this content by remembering to like us on facebook and follow us on twitter you can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.